in the order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In the order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In the order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hi, good evening. Welcome. So, before we started sitting, somebody asked which uh, consciousness is the substrate that he's referring, that uh, the author, Alan Wallace, is referring to repeatedly, and that's the eighth consciousness. And in the reading, Last week, let's see. Observing the space of consciousness, right? Observing the space of the mind. He says the substrate consciousness is not inherently human, for this is also the ground state of all other sentient animals. So, all sentient beings, eighth consciousness, substrate consciousness. And so this week, we had these two articles, and uh, I thought I would start with the one uh, from Contemplative Science, called Worlds of Intersubjectivity. A little bit of like, using these big foreign words to make things, I don't know, it's different, intersubjectivity. And uh, between last week and this week, you got a fairly good dose of his predilection for uh, science and Western science and uh, its benefits and deficiencies and uh, relations to Buddhism and meditation. And I think going forward, there'll be less of that. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing for, for you guys. I'm not, uh, but uh, there's plenty of it if you're interested <laughs> in, in other places. So, um, Worlds of Intersubjectivity, I thought was a, a, a really wonderful overview of uh, a number of different types of meditative practices. And uh, so I thought I'd go through this in detail and at some point switch over to refining human consciousness because he goes through a, a different type of meditation practice in that that he doesn't go over in worlds of subjectivity. So intersubjectivity lies at the very heart of the Buddhist worldview and its path to spiritual awakening. So I'll read most of it, I'll skip around and then comment here and there. Feel free to interrupt and interject. Just go for it. 
um, lies at the very heart of Buddhist worldview and its path to spiritual awakening, intersubjectivity, shared, shared uh, view of what's going on, intersubjectivity. Not quite sure exactly how you would define that term, but we'll see how he's using it. According to this, each person exists as an individual, but the self or personal identity is not an independent ego that's somehow in control of the body and mind. So the individual is a, a relative phenomena that exists, and the self, the personal identity, is a relative phenomena that does not exist. <laughs> There's three aspects to this dependence. The dependence of the individual upon a matrix of events, right? So we project a sense of self onto uh, onto some uh, basis of designation. The self arises in dependence upon prior contributing causes, parents, cultural upbringing, in various aspects. And so our existence is invariably intersubjective. We exist in a causal nexus. Two, the individual self does not exist independently of mind and body, sorry, body, body and mind, but rather in reliance upon a myriad of physical and mental processes that are constantly changing. And three, as is uh, presented in the what's called the middle way view or Madhyamaka, which seeks to avoid the two extremes of substantialism and nihilism or nihilism. The self is brought into existence by the power of conceptual imputation alone. And so we're not uh, having a philosophical course, so we won't really go into that. So there's no innate self? No, there's no innate self. Or innate sense of self? There is an innate sense of self. Uh, well, that's not conceptual, is it? It's uh, both conceptual and non-conceptual. We usually think that the sense of self is conceptual, but it's actually uh, non-conceptual, pre-conceptual, fundamentally. Right, so concept happens in the fourth skanda, and... Uh, of uh, in the fourth skanda, which is part of uh, mind, and uh, the eighth consciousness is the seat of the sense of self. And so there's a non-conceptual sense of self at the base of our being, at the eighth consciousness. And from there arises the other skandhas. And so there's there's some interesting things he says about mind that I'll stop at, and uh, we can talk about the structure of mind. Um, and that's one of them. So he has this example of uh, on the basis of some aspect of the body. For example, I'm tall or mental process. I'm content. The self is conceptually imputed upon something it is not. We say that I am tall and content. And the self is not tall and content. Thus, even though I am not the height of my body or the effective state of being content within the conceptual framework in which I think of myself and others think of me, it's conventionally valid to assert that I am tall. 
and content being tall. I wish I was tall. Anyway, moreover, Buddhism maintains that conceptual frameworks are not private, they're public. This was interesting and consensual. So the way I, ways I perceive and conceive myself and others are inextricably related to the community of language, of users and thinkers with whom I share common language and fr conceptual framework. So this uh, sort of uh, blending of our minds due to the way that we uh, similarly conceptualize ourselves and our worlds and express that with language and the way that language impacts the way that we conceptualize things. So solitary retreat kind of undoes that sort of thing. Yeah, he talks about that, yeah. We view ourselves, others, and the world around us by way of shared ideas without which the world as we perceive it and conceive it would not exist without those shared ideas. Thus our very existence as individuals, whether in community or solitude, is subjective. What are the ramifications of this way of viewing reality? Here I'll focus on the following five questions pertaining to this. One, does human individual human consciousness emerge solely from the dynamic interrelation of self and other, making it therefore inherently intersubjective? And here he'll address this topic from within the framework of the Buddhist practice of the cultivation of meditative quiescence, which is his translation for the term shamatha in Sanskrit, in which the conceptual mind is stilled and the attention is withdrawn away from the external into the pure realm of mental consciousness. Secondly, in what ways does Buddhist meditation cultivate a sense of empathy as an indispensable means for gaining insight? This is a point that's uh, often not stressed enough is that empathy is uh, essential for developing insight into the nature of oneself as well as others obviously and the relations and here he'll go through the four foundations of mindfulness um, how does the theme of intersubjectivity pertain to Buddhist practices designed to induce greater empathy and he goes through the four measurables so we have a whole range of practices that he goes through rather briefly, which is sort of cool. What significance does the Buddhist emphasis on the dreamlike nature of waking reality have for this issue? And he goes through dream yoga, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. <laughs> and lastly, how does Buddhism challenge the assertion of the existence of an inherently real, localized, ego-centered mind? And in what ways does it challenge the dichotomy of objective space? and perceptual, rather, space. And here he goes into the Great Perfection teachings, which is a rather interesting presentation of that. If you've never experienced that before, I hope you enjoyed that. Meditative quiescence. In Buddhism, the development of meditative quiescence is regarded as an indispensable prerequisite for the cultivation of contemplative insight. And as we, uh, as was brought up last week, to what degree is, remains the $64 million question. The fundamental distinction between the two disciplines is that, here he gives the standard traditional description, the practice of quiescence, Jamacha, involves refining the attention by means of enhancing attentional stability, one, vividness, two, and counteracting the mind's 
habitual tendencies towards alternating attentional excitation and laxity. Strength, three, those three qualities, stability, vividness, and strength. The cultivation of contemplative insight, on the other hand, entails the precise examination and investigation of various facets of reality using the previously refined attentional abilities. Thus, the training quiescence may be regarded as a kind of contemplative technology aimed at uh, developing one of the primary tools. And the training insight may be viewed as a kind of contemplative science aimed at acquiring experiential knowledge of the mind. Let's see. But as a mysterious human being, so I'm skipping a little bit. I hope that's not upsetting or too disjointing. Uh, human beings with unimpaired faculties of six modes of perception. And he's using the term perception. And uh, we would use the term consciousness, uh, but the consciousness of sense perceptions. Perceptions is a little bit vague. I, I feel that sometimes we use perception for one of the skandhas, right? The third skanda sometimes. Trungpa Rinpoche uses it, and he's really using it for consciousness. Was somebody dialing in there, chiming in? I heard some noise. Nope. Um, let's see, mental perception, skipping a sentence, is viewed as being quite distinct from our capacity to think, remember, and imagine. So going back a sentence, five of these modes are by way of the five physical senses, five of these ways of modes of perception, and the sixth is mental perception by means of which we perceive or conscious of mental phenomena. Mental phenomena include thoughts, mental imagery, dreams, and emotions, which is not necessarily an exhaustive list. And mental perception is viewed as being quite distinct from our capacity to think. This is uh, what I was referring to, an interesting aspect of the way that the mind is viewed in Buddhism as having these different uh, parts or skandhas or aspects and uh, the capacity to to think, remember, and imagine, all of which are conceptual, happens with the fourth skanda, which are mental factors. And when we're talking about mental perception, we're talking about mental consciousness, the fifth skanda. And in the Buddhist system, every moment of cognition, there is one of the six types of mental consciousnesses, sorry, one of the six types of consciousnesses, and a um, usually a, a wide array of different types of mental factors, which often, or let's say always, almost almost always in the case of unenlightened beings called sentient beings. Uh, includes conceptuality, which is one of the mental factors. Okay. Um, skipping to the next paragraph. Mental perception is not readily amenable to technological enhancement yet. <laughs> 
But among the six senses, it is, according to Buddhism, the one that can be most refined and extended through training. And he means like, you know, we we extend our, our physical sense of sight with eyeglasses and hearing aids for ears and things, but we don't yet have like a, a little device that you can plug into your brain and help you think and remember, right? <laughs> or or is, isn't that the iPhone? That does the opposite, right? You can no longer remember any phone numbers once you start using an iPhone. Or Google. Uh, Google, right? You no longer need to remember anything. Ah, so let's see. He calls this untrained, the normal untrained mind, prone to alternating bouts of compulsive laxity. Uh, sorry, excitation and laxity is dysfunctional. Thank you for that, Alan. <laughs> We're all dysfunctional, so the bad news is that most of us are intentionally challenged, regardless of whether we have ADHD or whatever. And the good news, however, is that this can be treated. And if you watch this seven-minute video, <laughs> you can learn how. Traditionally, Buddhists who are dedicated to exploring the attempt to which attentional stability and vividness can be enhanced are advised to disengage temporarily from social activity, as Robert was hinting at earlier. Withdrawing into solitude for 10 years or so is generally recommended. As long as we're actively engaged in society, our senses, our sense of personal identity, Identity is strongly reinforced by our intersubjective relations with others, but through withdrawal into solitude, our identity is significantly decontextualized. By disengaging from social interactions, the sense of self is holding a position in society is eroded, and by, by disengaging from ideations, such as conceptual, conceptually dwelling on events from our personal history or experiences, um, thinking about ourselves in the present, anticipating, etc., a sense of self as, as occupying a real place in nature is eroded. To be decontextualized is to be deconstructed or deprogrammed, as they used to say, right? And he talks about how being sent into exile was this sort of torturous thing. Uh, whereas in Buddhism, being sent into exile is like a free retreat. <laughs> I don't know about the free part, but uh, forced. This existential shift is not undertaken casually or without suitable preparations. And uh, so as an aside, um, many of us do group retreats. And uh, I urge you at some point to do solitary retreats. It's quite different and quite... Uh, challenging but quite rewarding. It really is uh, quite an amazing experience to do solitary retreats. It's not easy to come up with places to do that. So we have to work on that as groups. We should be working on getting places where we can do solitary retreats, each of us like share a place, because uh, it really is uh, the best place for making progress in this project, so to speak. And uh, the Buddha gives the analogy of a huge elephant that goes into a pond to drink and bathe and 
uh, has no problem being stable there, whereas smaller creatures such as our cat, we talked about earlier, has a hard time. And the deciding point at the bottom of that page, the critical issue, is whether one has cultivated sufficient emotional stability and balance to be able to live happily without reliance upon the hedonic pleasures aroused by agreeable, sensual, intellectual, aesthetic, and interpersonal stimuli. I love the way he uses these antiseptic, uh, these anticeptical, these sort of cleaned up terminologies, hedonic pleasures, agreeable, sensual. Anyway, the single most powerful practice for achieving such emotional health is the cultivation of sense of connectedness with others. This is done by empathetically reflecting again and again on others as subjects like oneself with their hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, success and failures in this way, whether alone or with others, one overcomes the sense of loneliness and isolation. He's referring to traditional Mahayana practice of equalizing sense of self and others, which in many traditions is used as a preparation for Tonglen practice, that before you would exchange self and others, you would first experience the equality of self and others. And uh, in our tradition, the way that that's done is by cultivating the four immeasurables, loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, or sympathetic joy, and then um, equalness, uh, often called equanimity, but it's really equality, a sense of equality of self and others. It's, it's often called equanimity as if we're like placid and no longer impacted by anything, but it's more traditionally described as the understanding the equality of self and others and feeling this empathy, this sort of universal or limitless empathy with other sentient beings where the division between self and other is uh, um, smoothed out or lessened. Among the many techniques taught in Buddhism for training the attention most widely practiced entails cultivating mindfulness of the breathing. We begin by focusing the attention on the tactile sensations of the breath at the apertures of the nostrils. So this is the more traditional version of breath meditation. Whereas uh, in the tradition from Shunkar Rinpoche, he doesn't really emphasize uh, repeatedly at least focusing on the, the nose, the nostrils. He's more general about where to, to experience, uh, in his case, the out-breath. But traditionally, one focuses on a small area, the nostrils, where we actually can feel the tactile sensation of the breath entering and leaving the body, the nostrils. Over time, the body comes to feel light and the respiration becomes more and more subtle. Eventually, while focusing the attention on the point of contact, of the breath right there, a mental image spontaneously arises on which one then sustains the attention. So he's, he's, he's now talking about the practice of um, uh, perfecting shamatha and cultivating the entryway into the absorption states. Not something that's done uh, commonly in the Mahayana, and uh, particularly the Vajrayana traditions, but it's certainly uh, a common thing in the Theravadan or early teachings of the Buddha. 
and is like presented also in Shanti Deva and uh, other Mahayana presentations. So, yes, the the jhana. So jhana is a, a Pali word, and uh, in Sanskrit it's dhyana, and in English we say absorptions. The type of image that arises varies from one person to the next, but may appear, for example, like a star, a round ruby, or a pearl. This mental object remains the focus of attention until eventually it's replaced by a far subtler counterpart sign, which may also, also may arise in a variety of forms. Now, if this is the first time you've read this sort of thing, you might be really interested, like, whoa, i got to check that out. My question is, are the eyes open or closed? Either. So eyes open, this thing still pops up. Yes, although they, they generally practice this with the eyes closed more commonly. But we're talking like going into a trance state, basically. So you, you've disconnected from your visual field if the eyes are open or if they're closed you know the visual field is whatever we see when we close our eyes it, we still have a visual field but it's right you got you got all those blobs and colors and stuff you see that when you close your eyes yeah <laughs> huh you better get that shit. <laughs> just kidding yes <laughs> yeah so th this is a uh like a very advanced type of uh intense shamatha practice that that uh so i would not like recommend obsessing like what is this sign and can i you know was that it sort of thing like oh maybe that was it maybe that's what i experienced or like you know you have some little thing appear in your mind or f visual field and are like oh was that it and then you chase after it try not to do that <laughs> it's not it, it probably wasn't one of these signs, and it's and the only way to to make these signs grow is to not obsess over them, but just to continue doing the technique. So, there's a uh, you heard of Daniel Ingram? Yes, a hardcore. He's a real hardcore guy. Well, I was listening to a uh, an interview. I forget who did it, but it was he, he and Delson Armstrong, who was another. Yeah, they claimed there's a number of Westerners, including this gentleman, who claimed to have experienced the absorption states and to be able to experience them at will. And uh, Alan Wallace is highly skeptical and, and basically does not believe that they're experiencing true uh, absorption states because for two reasons, which we'll probably come across, but... Uh, one reason is that when you, the traditional accounts, and he's, well, he says, first, should we, should we use the descriptions in the traditional texts as the guide? And he thinks we should. And in the traditional texts, the, uh, the presentation includes two things. One is that, um, when you achieve the, uh, an absorption state you can go into meditation and stay in meditation like for days without needing to eat or drink or go to the bathroom or anything else 
And uh, secondly, you have consciousness throughout your deep sleep at night. And we have not heard from any of these people that they have that power, nor have we, you know, have there been reports of seeing them do this. And um, then there's a subtler uh, argument that he uses that generally they ex they explain these experiences as, as first there's the counterpart, first there's the... Uh, uh, what's called the training sign. He doesn't give the term here. He says there's an image that appears, and the first image is called the training sign. And um, the these these Westerners who describe it say that the the counterpart sign, the second sign, is like way more incredible and and profound than the training sign. Whereas the traditional texts say the exact opposite, that the counterpart sign is a thousand times more subtle. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's a fascinating field. It's a fascinating thing. There's a number of people who claim to have experience. And then some of them say, some of the Westerners were like, well, there's two types of jhanas. There's like the, the fully blown jhana states, and then there's like the sort of halfway jhana states. Aren't they mostly, um, whereas shamatha leading to vipassana, leading to dzogchen, or mahamudra, there's a more open, spacious awareness where from, from listening to them speak, um, and they're all self-proclaimed for the most part, um, but anyway, listening to them speak, it seems that <clears throat> that is that experience is much more like focused on the object completely. That's why we use the term absorption, absorption. And, tra and trance state. And it doesn't seem, to... like, doesn't seem like there's much. I I don't get that from the ones that I've listened to. Does doesn't seem like they've developed much uh, compassion. Not that they're not compassionate people, but but they, it doesn't seem like that has been... Right, know, it's, it's not known for cultivating either compassion or insight. It's mm -hmm. said to, to be then, you know, like a super basis, super platform for cultivating whatever you want then with your mind. But it's, ex it's said to be excessive. And the Tibetan and Mahayana traditions generally say that uh, shamatha, the culmination of shamatha itself, is is the uh, fully adequate basis for cultivating uh, compassion and insight, and actually lead towards it. Whereas going going further into absorption, as you say, sort of limits the. Uh, the experience that one has, and that's what how it's described. That one by one, that you let go of different mental factors until there's just equanimity and one pointedness are the only remaining mental factors. I took his scientific view. I would say the sign is the energy of consciousness. You know, you have an energy. You feed your brain, and the counterpoint would be the ground. That's what he's implying, right? Uh, I, I think 
uh, I think you're trying to to contextualize his presentation of going like into the substrate consciousness, and he's he's not really the counterpart sign is not really about oh. that. Some some point we should we should uh, go through the the process of John. It's sort of interesting. Um, well, actually, the refining chapter will shift you, and that does. So we'll actually shift to that in a minute. At this point, the attention is so concentrated in the field of mental perception, the mind is free of all physical sense impressions. Um, including those of the body. If one then disengages the attention from the counterpart sign without relinquishing the heightened sense of attentional stability and vividness, in this absence of appearances comes the experience of a primal state of contentless awareness. So he's suggesting he's saying you disengage from the counterpart sign. So he's saying instead of going into absorption, one just um, re- remain with the attentional stability and vividness, then you experience the substrate, which in the Theravadan tradition is called the bhavanga, which sounds like a certain dance or something that they, they do, but it's actually the ground of becoming. It's a primal state of contentless awareness from which all active mental processes arise. As mentioned previously, this mode of awareness is said to shine with its own radiance, which is obscured only due to internal and external stimuli and is experienced as being primordially pure, regardless of whether it is temporarily blocked by adventitious defilements. Remarkably, some Buddhist contemplatives have also found that the nature of this relative ground state of consciousness so this is the ace consciousness and i'm um, sorry is loving kindness and is regarded as the source of people's incentive uh, to meditatively develop their minds in the pursuit of spiritual liberation so you see in his description of the eighth consciousness there's this interplay of it on the one hand being relative uh, the basis of sort of relative samsaric mind but on the other hand it has like these very um, highly advanced qualities and uh, that's generally in the tradition the way it's described we we've we've we don't often get a clear um, presentation of it as having both of these qualities but um, we did see that those of us that did the last course on luminous heart, but he's talking about the stainless mind. It's a similar way of talking about the sort of positive aspect of um, the eighth, and uh, in in Jun Dorje's case, the eighth and seventh consciousness as having this um, pure quality. And in many texts, there's this presentation of the eighth consciousness as having these two options of being samsara or the basis for nirvana, and being uh, by ter- the the most uh, um, 
powerful, let's say, presentation of this is in one of the early sutras called the uh, uh, Lanka Avatara Sutra, where the Buddha talks about the turning around at the base of consciousness. And so he says that the Alia Vijnana turns around instead of looking outward towards the senses it turns in on itself and then transforms into enlightened mind and and so there's no clear delineation between the eighth consciousness and what's below the eighth consciousness as there is in the later mahayana tradition it says that there's well either like a ninth consciousness or like the alia without the jnana sorry, without the vijnana, or maybe even an alia jnana, a base wisdom, as opposed to a base consciousness that is the Buddha nature. And um, so there is this complexity of, uh, of that state of being that uh, is described in these various ways and can sometimes be confusing. So in particular, this author, as noted last week, refers to this consciousness as the natural state of mind, which in some contexts would mean enlightened mind. But he differentiates it by saying that enlightened mind is primordial wisdom, primordial knowing as opposed to um, consciousness, as opposed to ground consciousness, which is uh, which harkens back to this whole idea of separating wisdom from consciousness, which is the fourth reliance. The experience of such a state of contentless mental awareness is common to various schools of Indian Tibetan Buddhist meditation, as well as other non-Buddhist contemplative traditions. So there are empirical grounds for concluding that this is not simply a matter of speculation, but an element of experience for contemplatives trained in a variety of techniques adhering to a wide range of philosophical beliefs. So many different traditions have found this, this uh, base consciousness. Um, and according to the Buddhist slant is that they've not got other traditions, they don't go beyond it. If so, the possibility of such experience has profound implications for questions concerning the nature of consciousness. Also, um, I left out one thing with the jhanas. Achieving the jhanas gives you uh, miraculous powers, such as uh, seeing what can't be seen and hearing what can't be seen and things like that, which uh, also come from the ability to stay in the eighth consciousness. Let's see. Is consciousness uh, intersubjective? Blah, blah, blah. Let's see. The observation that the bhavangas of the nature of love implies that empathy is innate to consciousness and exists prior to the emergence of all active mental processes. Interesting way of uh, sort of describing or explaining how the true nature of mind is the union of compassion and understanding. It's that it's just... That's its nature. This in turn implies that empathy, empathy on the part of researchers must be a prerequisite for any science of consciousness. 
that's an interesting conclusion. On the other hand, the assertion that this state of awareness is free of all sensory mental appearances implies a degree of autonomy from language, conceptual frameworks, active engagement. So consciousness is not really constituted by the relation of self to others, but rather is intersubjective in the weaker sense of simply being inherently open to and connected. Anyway, that's his fixation on uh, it, this intersubjectivity thing. So I'm going to switch to the other one, refining human consciousness. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Uh, is, is his use of that term the same as interdependence? Or Intersubjective? Is it, yeah, or is it different? I can't get quite, I don't quite get I the think, use of the term. I think uh, interdependence is a larger category. And there's many ways that things are interdependent. Mm -hmm. Causally, functionally, inanimate things can be interdependent. But that uh, and, uh, sentient beings are intersubjective. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a little hard time actually sort of wrapping my arms around it. But um, well, I think how, this, about, how about if it's like when you go to the theater and, 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 and it's dramatic and the whole audience has a, an experience. Is, is he meaning it in that way? I think so. I think that's the mm -hmm. idea that, that we have a, a shared, basically a shared experience. We see uh, similar things and we experience similar things and our minds function in similar ways in terms of uh, the uh, dependence upon the sense of self and the way that we conceptualize and uh, the way that we use language and so forth. Yeah, but like, like when that little girl so sang that song Frozen in the bunker, you know, like the whole planet started to cry. <laughs> I think so. Okay, so uh, refining human consciousness for those of us humans. Uh, let's see, starting from the second paragraph in a previous chapter, we investigated methods of realizing personal identitylessness. A radical thing to do. The modes of analysis that were presented made frequent use of the terms body and mind. Now, if one's knowledge and the nature of one's own body and mind is largely abstract intellectual, inquiry into the relation between the self and the body and mind is unlikely to penetrate to a deep deeper level, it would simply lead to further theoretical conclusions. Thus, a basis for such analysis, as a basis for such analysis, it's most useful to examine closely the nature and function of one's body, feelings, mental states, and other mental contents. And um, it reminds me, interestingly, in the Theravadan tradition, the first exercise in the development of what's called called insight in that tradition where purification of view as it's called is understanding the difference in the relationship between mind and body which is not an easy thing to do and uh, it's, it's in some ways very similar to the Mahamudra tradition of looking for the mind and looking for where where is it in our being where it gets decided what to do with our body and mind every moment. When we decide to raise our arm or to say something, where is that decision 
being made and how does that then impact the physical arm or the, the vocal cords. And that's sort of the essence of the Mahamudra investigation when you go through the various uh, aspects of it. It sort of concludes with, with looking at where is this really root of uh, supposed self? Anyway, our own mind, one's own mind is potentially the most penetrating instrument for examining each of the four types of phenomena, which were body, feelings, mental states, and other mental consciousnesses, which are um, the skandhas. From moment to moment, do they exist as static things or a continual state of flux? Is the experience of them as pleasurable and different? So are, are they impermanent? What's the, the feeling tone of them? Do they exhibit qualities of I or mine? Is there a self in them? Or do they simply arise into consciousness and pass from it as merely inter impersonal events? A major challenge of this method of inquiry is to distinguish what seems to be presented to one's awareness as opposed to the preconceived judgments that we project upon those appearances. Very important uh, thing to distinguish in insight practice is our projection of the way things in our mind are versus how we actually experience them. Let's see, uh, upon investigating these phenomena from moment to moment, one proceeds to examine the sequential causal relationships among them, and one witnesses with relative passivity the interactions among sensory experiences. So this is inside practice, looking at the causal interrelationships between the different mental experiences. And one witnesses with relative passivity the interactions among sense, sense exp, uh, perceptions, experiences, feelings, desires, intentions, and so on. And one may question the existence of any controlling ego that lies outside the fields of one experience. So here's another type of meditation is insight meditation. In addition to uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, shamatha, and uh, the four immeasurables, and dream yoga, and so forth. This is uh, the basic uh, insight meditation. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, when you use the term insight, are you also referring to Vipassana? Yes, that's what I mean by okay. insight. Yeah. Completely Vipassana. Even when that sense of personal identity is restrained from acting, Active manipulation of body, mind, and may be found that mental physical interactions continue to take place. In this way, one may experientially realize that no substantial autonomous eyes to be found within the experienced body, mind. And one may further realize that there's no evidence of mental physical events being controlled by an ego that lies outside of one's experience. So one's experience seems like an I, but you can't find it. The experiencer itself can be identified as mental consciousness, which is devoid of I or mine, because it's completely contingent upon the object of consciousness and changes every moment. 
whereas the sense of I is continuous and feels continuous and independent, as well as unitary, whereas consciousness is, is infinitely fragmented. Such empirical insights can have an extremely power, profound effect upon one's intuitive sense of personal identity. And skipping a few sentences, these are examples of Buddhist insight meditation. Insight in this context is attained through a general and detailed examination of reality and the systematic application of intellectual discrimination. So this is the traditional version of Vipassana, which is that it's discursive, that it involves analysis and discrimination. And in this uh, in this practice, the sole instrument for the research is one's own mind, and if one's attention span is brief and powers of observation heavily clouded with compulsive conceptualization, such inquiry is bound to be unreliable and not uh, uh, productive of any change. Most of us may well find that our own present mental stability and clarity for such research are very limited. So he's speaking to like the scientific his theoretical audience, his scientists. So let us pause to engage in a brief experiment to test the present level, sit comfortably in a chair and so forth. So he asked them to, you know, meditate for a moment. So it's an interesting ex experiment with people who are not into meditation. And let's see, on the next page, at the bottom of that next paragraph, he says, maintain this conceptually silent yet lucid and wakeful sense state of awareness for five minutes without mental wandering or torpor. <laughs> How many people can do that? <laughs> it's quite possible that in all your years of education never been trained to cultivate this simple form of quiescent, stable, lucid awareness, those three qualities. Um, and you probably found you were unable to do it. Uh, so, next paragraph, disadvantages of undisciplined mind is a big problem. And so, and since the time of the Buddha, the Buddha and since him, they've come up with many ways. So in the middle of that next paragraph that starts with the disadvantages, there's a sentence that says, traditionally, the initial emphasis on Buddhist meditative discipline is on stabilizing the mind. Such training requires very demanding preparation and sustained, undistracted commitment to meditative discipline and is fraught with physical and psychological perils. Interesting, it always brings up these perils. These are some of the reasons why this training is not frequently given nowadays, especially in the West, despite the obvious need for it. Of, one may, of course, devote one's contemplative practice entirely to the cultivation of insight without specifically seeking to stabilize the mind as a discipline in its own right. Such training can still yield many insights, but if one's awareness is unstable, such moments of realization are bound to be brief and intermittent at best and limited in their transformative power to eliminate suffering and the mental afflictions that produce anxiety and grief. The emphasis in traditional Buddhist practice on saturating the mind in the realization of the absence of a substantial personal identity and the realization of emptiness. However, it's only by repeated and prolonged experience of those truths that one is freed from the mental distortion of ignorance. 
this is an interesting presentation. Sometimes we get the sense that if you have insight into that, the truth of egolessness, in an instant, everything is completely transformed. And so what he's not really saying is that in order to, in order to get to that instant where everything changes, one needs to have focused attention on the absence of personal identity. Um, in principle, it's possible to develop mental stability in the very process of exploring the nature of reality. And we've seen this before where it, it is possible to develop shamatha within or by starting with vipassana or insight, but it's not easy. Um, but as long as one's attention is moving from one object to another, deep stability is not gained. And, and he's saying in vipassana or insight, we're moving from one um, object to another. We're seeing the different uh, mental objects in the mind, the different experiences and the different characteristics of our mental experience. And so there's this constant movement and there's no uh, uh, unchanging stillness that leads to the stability, strength, and vividness of shamatha that then makes the practice of insight effective. So a pitch for starting, starting with shamatha. In the Buddhist teaching, teaching, sorry, recorded in the Pali language, 40 techniques are set forth that lead to mental stabilization. So once once you perfect breath meditation, you go on to the next 39 techniques. Just kidding. Um, let's see. Among them, specific methods are indicated for aspirants of various temperaments and inclinations. We've seen this in other courses, but there's this traditional list of 40 topics, and some of them are like assigned to people of different temperaments, like those of us that are obsessed with uh, sensuality, do this. If you're obsessed with uh, enmity or anger or hatred, you do this, or sloth or laziness, you do this one. And if you're just generally like very discursive, you do breath meditation. So the tradition over time has just simplified things. They've you know, found that basically everybody is just totally discursive, so we all do breath meditation. Uh, among these 40 methods, only one is appropriate for people with a strong tendency toward conceptualization and imagination, mindfulness of the breath, respiration. A wide variety of other techniques are presented in the literature, contemplative literature, visualization of the Buddhas, one commonly taught method while focusing one's awareness on the mind itself is another potent method for achieving quiescence. And that's a, a little hint that that practice is one that we're going to see a lot of in his writings in this course. Numerous other means are set forth in more advanced systems. Given the fact that so many people brought up in Western society are prone to intense compulsive conceptualization, it may be helpful to introduce briefly the technique of mindfulness of breathing. In this practice, one sits with the torso erect in a posture that's both stable and relaxed. At the beginning of an inhalation, the attention is focused on the nostrils. We saw this in the other article. Um, I believe he's going to go a little more deeply in this one, which is why I had to switch to this. Uh, to give us the basic of uh, the basics of shamatha. 
Uh, let's see, then throughout the inhalation, one follows the course of the sensations of the breath into the nose, down the throat, down the torso, to the level of the navel. The object of the awareness is the tactile sensation associated with the inhalation rather than the actual movement of the air into the lungs. So the feeling of air going into the body, um, the feeling of the body's response to air coming in in terms of expanding and the abdomen dropping down. At the beginning of the exhalation, one focuses on the tactile sensations at the level of the navel, where the abdomen, abdominal muscles then come up, pressing the air out, and then follows the sensations in the reverse direction back to the apertures of the nostrils, and this entails a path passive witnessing of those sensations without conceptual elaboration. The mental qualities to be cultivated are clarity, or otherwise called vividness, or luminosity, which is a knowing, a quality of knowing, and is not about light. Uh, stability, stable uh, in one, one spot, in one object. And then relaxation. And interestingly, he, he gives this third category, This uh, he calls it relaxation in other systems. It's called, sometimes in the earliest presentation by the Buddha, it was called ardor, sort of uh, intensity. Um, in other presentations, it's called strength. There's uh, traditionally, the it's described as the ability to stay on an object is the stability. The ability to know the object is the clarity, and the ability to pierce into the object and experience the subtleties of that object is the strength. And here, he's coming from his background now as the uh, Dzogchen tradition, which, emphasize, which, which describes this third quality as relaxation. That relaxation will, combined with these other qualities, will yield the fact, the experience of strength and subtlety of uh, perception. Didn't last course we have that that one moment where, or that one paragraph where it talked about how monkey mind turns into gorilla mind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> right? It sounds yeah. like that a little bit. Or the opposite, no? Well, no, because like gorilla mind is like that powerful strength. But it's oh, also, right, right. That's I remember now. Yes, but it's also like just implacable. It's just there, you know. Yep, yep. And a trained mind can be used in various ways. Uh, skipping a few sentences, thus the emphasis on this training is to strive first for mental stability, in which the mind is not being compulsively bombarded by conceptual distractions. As such stability is acquired, one then seeks to heighten one's, one's mental clarity. The first of those qualities allows one to remain focused on the object without being pulled away by conceptual or sensory distractions. The second one, the second uh, quality, allows one to examine the fine details of the object. The integration of these two, stability and clarity, is very challenging. And stability and clarity are uh, uh, then affiliated with mindfulness and um, awareness, or, or what's uh, basically um, sati 
in Sanskrit, mindfulness. Sorry, uh, smriti in Sanskrit, sati in Pali is mindfulness. Trenpa in Tibetan, and then in Sanskrit, samprajanya, this quality of clarity or knowing, present knowing. Sheshan in Tibetan. So those two qualities in English, mindfulness and either vigilance or introspection or awareness. That second quality has a wide range of translations, but these are the two main factors of shamatha. So these are still both within shamatha. This is not awareness like vipassana. Exactly. Point. Yeah, he started with vipassana. Now he's going through the basics of shamatha. Thank you for clarifying that. So this knowing quality is presented as part of shamatha, and it's knowing the object as well as knowing the meditator. So he says here, um, the second quality allows one to examine the fine details of the object. The integration is very challenging, and the tendency among trainees is to, to try to accomplish that goal by means of sheer determination and effort. Such an approach, however, leads to mental and physical exhaustion. And if one still perseveres, damage to the body and mind results if we try to force it really hard. Effort must certainly be given to the cultivation of stability and clarity, but it must be skillfully applied. And that's why he described that third quality as relaxation. That, that basically this is the natural state of mind has these qualities and so we're not trying to fabricate some state of mind but we're trying to let everything else fall away and relax or sink into that natural state of mind yeah um, yes ma'am I, I wonder if that um, using the term relaxation uh is geared more towards sort of a Western audience because we're so compulsive. <laughs> and uh, It may be, it may be, yeah. And, and uh, I think you're right. And in uh, traditional Tibetan presentations, they, they use a more like exertionful mm. terminology. I think you're right. We're all like overachievers in the West. <laughs> we work obsessively and so forth. Um, let's see, if the effort is too slack, the mind quickly succumbs to unrestrained conceptual wandering or, or to an increasingly dull stupor. And if the effort is too tight, nervous exhaustion, physical discomfort are a result when one skillfully combines the qualities of stability, clarity, and relaxation, the quality of one's effort becomes increasingly refined. At the beginning of the training, one encounters uh, gross levels of conceptual agitation and mental laxity and a relatively uh, gross type of effort is needed to counter this. So there's, there's these two levels of uh, agitation and laxity, gross or coarse and then subtle, as well as the effort. But as those obstacles become more abdul, <laughs> which I think is supposed to be subtle, <laughs> the appropriate effort in the practice also becomes refined. When mindfulness can be maintained with continuity on the tactile sensations of the breath, from the apertures to the nostrils to the navel, one's ready for the next stage of practice. One now focuses on the tactile sensations of the inhalation exhalation where the breath strikes the apertures of the nostrils or the skin above the upper lip. So first there was this generalized uh, 
focus on the breath, the movement of the breath in the body, or really the body's reaction to breathing, expansion and contraction of various muscles in the body to breathing. And now we've, we narrow the focus of the object to just the nostrils or the upper lip, where the breath hits the upper lip. And you can feel, if you really refine your perception, you can feel the breath touching the upper lip. Uh, whereas previously one's intention moved throughout the body, now it's fixed at a single point. As one proceeds in this training, the mind and breath are gradually calmed. As the object of one's awareness, the breath is neither attractive nor repulsive. It stimulates neither craving nor aversion. The calm mind that is not afflicted by those impulses experiences a relative emotional equilibrium, and from this arises an unprecedented state of mental and physical suppleness and well-being. Here we're talking about the accomplishment of shamatha. In the early stages of these of the practices, these qualities arise only intermittently, but as one progresses, suppleness and joy are experienced with increasing frequency, intensity, and duration. As one continues to apply oneself in the practice, there eventually arises the acquired sign. To sum this sign, so here he's saying, if you go beyond the accomplishment of shamatha, progressing towards absorption meditation. And so there's a little bit of a teaser uh, description of this practice. To some, the sign appears to the mind's eye like a star, whereas for others it is seen as a cluster of gems or pearls or as various other forms. And he's basically quoting from this uh, famous and uh, sort of... Um, monumental work by a gentleman named Buddha Gosha called The Path of Purification, the Vasudhi Magga, uh, the, the main meditation manual in the Pali Buddhist tradition, um, which you can download. It's available for free as a, as a PDF if you're interested. The Path of Purification, it's like a thousand or twelve hundred pages. And uh, um, and here he describes the sign in these sort of cryptic ways. The sign may arise when one can remain focused on the breath for roughly an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you think you're experiencing these signs, see if you can remain focused on the breath for an hour. And then maybe, <laughs> how about like a five, ten minutes? Um with only a few brief conceptual distractions that arise spontaneously is not to be intentionally visualized. When the sign appears regularly and with continuity, one directs the attention away from the tactile sensations of the breath and now focuses entirely on this purely mental image. With this as the object, so when the sign appears regularly and with continuity, I said earlier, the technique is to not yet focus on the sign but to continue with the technique. And that's done until the sign becomes like uh, continuous and, and totally identifiable. And then you focus on the sign, which is a purely mental image. But this is the object. Mental stability and clarity are developed further until eventually one experiences the next step is the counterpart sign. These, these very obscure terms that really don't mean anything. 
which is far more refined than the earlier sign. This new sign is a purely mental representation of the primary quality of the breath, and like the acquired sign, it varies from one individual to another. When this sign arises, one attains a meditative state known as quiescence. Um, and, and this is, he's give, he's affiliating this with shamatha, which is not uh, an exclusive presentation of shamatha. It's a little confusing that he's doing this, because really shamatha is, is achieved before these signs appear. Um, just prior to its attainment, one experiences marked increase in mental physical suppleness, which is the mark of completion of shamatha and an unprecedented mental and physical joy, other signs of shamatha. At this point, the mind is endowed with intense clarity and stability during meditation that can be maintained effortlessly for hours on end. <laughs> so that's the mark of uh, achievement of absorption of these counterpart signs. Throughout this time, one's awareness is untainted by even subtle distractions or dullness. Even upon arising from meditation, one's mental and physical pliancy is enhanced, and it's very difficult for such afflictions as craving and hostility to arise and dominate the mind. Upon attaining quiescence, it's said that one may engage in further training to develop various types of extrasensory perception. In the Buddhist tradition, one may uh, attain the ability to hear sounds that occur far beyond the range of normal hearing. They're not heard with the ears, but with the mental awareness. Likewise, one develop, may develop clairvoyance. One can perceive events in distant, far distance in space as well as time, including the limited ability to witness future events, the abilities to penetrate other minds and to know one's own and others' past life experiences can also be developed on the basis of the attainment of the uh, absorption state of, of, of this type of quiescence. And the procedures for such are clearly set forth in the secret manuals that are not secret, such as the path of purification. There's other paranormal fa uh, faculties, and let's see, to, such as to cause the body to vanish and reappear. So we don't really hear many of the Western uh, people, the Westerners that achieve absorption, talk about how they can appear and disappear. <laughs> Or to these other supernormal powers. Um, move physically through solid objects and create a double of one's physical body, etc., etc. Um, bottom of the page. Regardless of the specific method that one chooses in the cultivation of quiescence, it's necessary to overcome the five obscurations. And so, uh, I'm bringing this in because just just because uh, his literature spans all these different types of meditation, and, it's, and I think it's really helpful for us to understand all these different meditational schemes. Even though this is not necessarily obviously the one that we do, uh, the five obscurations are sensual desire, malice, laziness, excitation, and what he calls skeptical doubt. And um, so the absorption states overcome these, but not overcome in the sense of uprooting them, but just temporarily put them in hold. Uh, 
the essential na or pure nature of the mind may be likened to a clear pool of water. And he gives this analogy that I'll skip. On the next page, on the attainment of quiescence, the mind is temporarily free from these five obscurations temporarily. At this point, one follows one of two paths of contemplative development. Individuals who are of a passionate nature, who have entered spiritual practice through strong faith, may benefit by stabilizing their minds to a higher degree before turning to more essential cultivation of insight. In other words, going further into the uh, remaining four jnanas, He's described what's called access concentration, which is the state of concentration between shamatha and the first absorption state. So he's saying you can go, uh, if you're of a passionate nature, <laughs> interestingly enough, then it's recommended or one can, if one has a passion for it, go into the absorption states or... Um, uh, people who are of more of an intellectual and skeptical. Skeptical is good. Disposition who are philosophically inclined may proceed directly from this attainment to the pursuit of insight. Such a state of quiescence is the minimum prerequisite for engaging in insight meditation with full effectiveness. So here's his statement in, in this particular text. And... and um, in my opinion, he's not exactly that clear on what this attainment is, but here he's saying this is the minimum of attainment to effectively pursue insight meditation, and that's a it's a bar way higher than any of us would like to would like it to be. I think <laughs> um, certainly much higher than is common in the, in the tradition that we come from in terms of uh, pursuing insight meditation, where basically we pursue that from day one. And uh, as well, very different from the so-called insight meditation movement that uh, apparently uh, has one practicing insight from day one. So, uh, but this is the more traditional view that one needs to achieve access concentration, which is the state between shamatha, shamatha being the tenth stage, in terms of the nine stages of a shamatha, the tenth stage is shamatha. The other stages each have their own name, and then there's access concentration, and then there's the first absorption state, if you go that route. Anyway, let's go back to uh, the other texts, the intersubjectivity for our remaining time. We're on the four applications of mindfulness section. The cultivation of compassion is like a silken thread that runs through and connects all the pearls of Buddhist meditative practices. Interesting emphasis on that, that cult, uh, compassion, cultivation of compassion runs through all meditation practices. Uh, he doesn't specify Mahayana. He seems to be implying that it runs through all of them, which is interesting. It's based upon empathy, but in a deep sense, insight into the nature of oneself, others, and the relation between oneself and the rest of the world. It's also synergistically related to empathy. And he, he repeats this common Buddhist saying that uh, compassion without wisdom is bondage, and wisdom without compassion is also a form of bondage. Thus, both qualities must be cultivated together. And he uh, goes through the presentation of the four foundations of mindfulness, 
uh, found initially in the Buddha's uh, presentation encapsulated in the, what's called the Satipatthana Sutta. She says this is the most revered of all Buddhist discourses in the Theravada tradition, and it entails the careful observation consideration of four areas or domains, the body, feelings, mental processes, and mental objects. And he says, all four of these of oneself as well as others, which is uh, his interpretation of the of the of this uh, traditional practice. And there's different opinions of a certain specific phrase that I'll come to shortly. Uh, but those are the traditional four areas. Trungpa Rinpoche changes that, as we know, and says body, livelihood, or life, or life force, um, feelings, and, uh, sorry, energy is the third one, and mind is the fourth one. A common theme within each of these four applications of mindfulness is first considering these elements of one's own being, and then attending to the same phenomenon in others, and finally shifting attention back and forth between self and others. So we would experience the sense of uh, materiality or body of oneself, and then, and then contemplate that same sense of materiality in those around us, and then in both self and other. And uh, let's see. Well, we'll come to it. Um, well, then we're training in intersubjectivity. Yeah, that's that's his point. Yeah, that's the article, and that's why how he's describing it. He says, uh, finally shifting attention back and forth between self and others, especially in the final phase, the practice one engages in what has recently been called reiterated empathy, imaginatively viewing one's own psychophysical processes from a second person perspective, I view my body and mind from what I imagine to be your perspective. What do you think of me? <laughs> Enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? <laughs> Just kidding. So that I begin to sense my own presence not only from within but from without. So practice leads to the insight that the second person perspective of one's own being is just as real as the first one and neither exists independently of the other. And let's see, skipping to the next page. Um, oh, the, the at the bottom of the page, he says... Uh, Another of the central aims of these four applications of mindfulness is to distinguish between the phenomena that are presented to our six modes of perception, including labels, categories, thoughts, aroused by emotional reactions. And the Buddha summed this up in this theme, summed up this theme when he declared, and there's this famous sutra called the Bahia Sutra, where this uh, advanced meditator but not a Buddhist, meets the Buddha, and his name is Bahia, and he's he's like, I, I got to meet you, the Buddha, I've heard all about you, and he sees him, and he's like, clearly you are the awakened one, please teach me, and the Buddha's like, I'm, I'm, going, I'm doing the uh, alms rounds, he was collecting food from people in the village, and, and traditionally you're not supposed to disturb the Buddha when he's doing that, so Ananda's like, no, don't bother him, leave him alone. <laughs> And he's but like, 
please, uh, I don't know, I might die in the next moment if, you know, please give me instruction. And so finally the Buddha gives him this pithy instruction of, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sense there is only the sensed, in the cognized there is only the cognized. And so then he attains enlightenment as soon as he hears that. Such practice leads to a kind of objectivity perceiving things to a greater extent as they are prior to personal conceptual overlays, judgments, and evaluations. To a greater extent as they are. And then he goes through the four foundations in detail. Uh, but in the middle of this, let's see where it is. He's the second sentence. The Buddha quintessentially described the practice as follows. One dwells observing the body as the body internally, or one dwells observing the body as the body externally, or one dwells observing the body as the body both internally and externally. And so the Buddha has this phrase when he describes the, the practices of the four foundations of mindfulness of internally and externally, or both. And different people interpret this differently. Some people interpret it as... Um, contemplating the inside of the body and uh, inwardly and then externally is the outside of the body, the surface of the body, as opposed to other beings, which is how Alan is interpreting this, is contemplating other beings, the bodies of other beings. Uh, let's see, so he goes through this practice. in some detail. Then he goes through the four foundation, uh, four immeasurables. Let's see, does it have a good conclusion? Gary? Yes. Is that that? Like Rinpoche, he said that once when someone asked him a question, he said that the whole world was his body. <laughs> yeah, what was the context for that? I don't know. It might have been about smoking cigarettes or a barking dog. There were weird things going on, I remember. <laughs> but but it was it was I think it was in response to someone who was maybe not understanding how he could have uh, treated his body the way he did, smoking and drinking as he did. And I think his response to the question was that the whole world is his body. Yeah, that was a very interesting response. And so how does that apply here? Is there some some connection between his response and like this way of looking at the, the body internally and looking at the bodies of other beings and then both of them and sort of going beyond the, the difference of them? Well, maybe that idea of like questioning where does what I think my body, of my body end. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, where does my body end and where is the body of others? And yeah. then we're sort of all, just like we're, we have similar minds, we have basically this interconnectivity of bodies as well, the physical world. And it's interesting, yeah, there's a, a very funny interaction where, uh, Rimshay is giving this teaching in a tent at the Rocky Mountain Dharma Center. And uh, during the Q&A, uh, this gentleman stands up and says, how can, you, 
How can you pollute your body? The body is a temple, a shrine. How can you be smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and polluting your body in this way? And uh, as he asks the question, this dog walks up uh, between the questioner and Rimshe, like right up towards the, the front of the room there. And what I think the dog like barks a while, like howls, and Rimshe barks back at the dog for a while, and they have like this howling communication, him and this dog. And then finally the dog walks off, and then Rimshe looks back at the gentleman and he says, What was the line? The whole world is my body. That's pretty profound. <laughs> That's a good one. I think you, yeah, I think Derek, I can't hear you. You did yourself, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was just me or not. There we go. Sorry, can you hear now? You heard about the movie part, right? <laughs> no? Oh, somebody's making a movie of his life. And I, I hope they put that in the movie, that scene, is what I had said. That would be a very fun part of the movie. Sort of sums him up in a way, I think. Yes. Uh, if you had to, if you had to, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, why do you, why are you drinking and smoking? And so they, everybody has that question, and so that would be a good one. Uh, four measurables, just the qualities of cognizance and loving kindness are coexistent in the ground state, known as the bhavanga, the aliyavishnana, so too in the course of spiritual maturation. Must the light of insight and the warmth of a loving heart be cultivated together? Therefore, in Buddhism, the four applications of mindfulness are traditionally contemplated by the cultivation of the four immeasurables. Just because there's four of each. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. He goes through this practice in some detail, which I found very helpful. Uh... The four immeasurables are really profound practice, basic practice, and uh, something that we should all do to some extent or another. But I'm not going to go through it in at this point, given that we're running out of time. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, in some uh, traditions, they don't they do the equality practice first, equanimity first. As opposed to yes, loving he, he, kindness. Yeah, he doesn't mention that. And uh -huh. uh, Longchenpa, the famous Nyingma, amazing superhuman being, uh, mentions that distinction. That he, he says something like this: that if you're cultivating the immeasurables as the preliminary to going into absorption, then you do them in this order and you, you end up with equanimity or equality as the entryway into then cultivating uh, shamatha into the absorption states. Whereas if you're cultivating the four immeasurables as a way of overcoming complacency, which is how um, uh, Gampopa presents it, Gampopa and his jewel ornament, or the ornament of precious liberation, uh, that 
the uh, four measurables comes after the so-called, it's like in between Hinayana and Mahayana in that, in that book, in between the four reminders and then bodhicitta. It's like the transitional practice. And then one does them in the order of first equanimity where, where, or equality of self and others, and then loving kindness and so forth. And then the, the sense of rejoicing and the benefit of all beings leads into the cultivation of bodhicitta mm-hmm. as opposed to absorption states. Yeah, thanks for... He doesn't mention that, interestingly. Um, but he gives a very cool chart on the four measurables with um, what's called the proximate cause, the false facsimile, uh, which uh, Pema Chudran goes through a similar scheme when she teaches the uh, paramitas in some of her, or at least one of her books. I can't remember which, but she has this idea of near and far enemy, where, you know, like... Um, uh, generosities, uh, the obvious enemy of generosity or uh, obstacle of generosity is stinginess. But the near enemy, so to speak, or the, the possible sort of facade type of generosity is, is uh, I, I can't remember the terminology, but like being generous in order to get things back, you know, to, in order to be viewed as a, a really good person by other people. And so he gives this cool chart of the four measurables with these these different aspects, which I found very helpful. And he also talks about Tonglen practice. And, uh, and he gives a, a, a different tradition of Tonglen that he has than ours. So let's see. Um, it's the page that's, uh, their pages are not numbered, I'm sorry about that. In Tibetan Buddhist tradition, cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is combined in a classic presentation known in Tibetan as Tonglen, meaning giving and taking. The enactment of loving kindness is the giving component of the practice, and the enactment of compassion is the taking. And he, then he describes the traditional way to do this, starting with a loved one and so neutral and someone you dislike and so forth. But then he says, um, whatever the affliction or adversity, physical or mental, one imagines taking it upon oneself in the form of a black cloud being removed from the other's body and mind and drawn into one's heart simultaneously one imagines the other person is gradually relieved of that black cloud. As soon as this dark cloud enters the heart, one imagines that it meets with a sense of self-centeredness, visualized as an orb of darkness. It's a cool way of doing it. And in an instant, that cloud of misery and the darkness of one's self-centeredness extinguish each other, leaving not a trace of either behind. <laughs> That's a very different way of doing Tonglen than ours, but it's neat. I, I agree. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, Tai Situ gave the uh, Rinpoche gave a talk um, about a week or so ago on Tonglen, and he described in some ways it was similar to this. He talked about you know the breathing out. Uh, it was interesting because you he had the imagining the other person breathing out, and which also was a little bit different. But anyway, then. As you breathe in, he sort of referenced breathing it in like to the sun and the sun just burns out all, 
you know, impurities or something, which was a wonderful image, actually. And I don't think I've heard that version before either, but it's kind of similar in some ways. That's cool. I just noticed there's a guy with a plant on his head next to you, Eileen. (laughs) That's funny. That's a cool uh, plant holder. Uh, Let's see. He says, uh, in the giving component, component, one imagines all prosperity and happiness, etc., uh, as a, the wellspring of a brilliant white light emanating from its heart, reaching out and suffusing the other person. Similar to what uh, Cynthia just described. And then he goes into dream yoga, which is also not something that we, many of us have practiced, but it's quite an amazing practice, and uh, it was quite an amazing uh, description, and we don't really have time to go through it here, but I think we'll probably come back to it. I, I don't think this is. Let's not. Let's make sure that this is not the the last time because uh, some interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I've I I never had like lucid dreaming or anything. But his final conclusion was interesting: is that you're seeing how your normal everyday is like a dream. Yeah. Really, yeah. There's basically two types of uh, dream yoga practice. One is is where you can actually do it and be lucid as you're dreaming, and then once you know you're dreaming in the dream, you're supposed to do all sorts of things like you meditate, uh, contemplate the dreamlike nature of the experience, go visit the Buddha. Go visit your, your, you know, whoever your stars are in the Buddhist tradition. My <laughs> Go visit <laughs> your grandma, Machik Labdronma, Yeshet Sogyal, Padmasambhava, you know, whoever it is. You can visit them. Just think of them in an instant. They're there and, and you request teachings from them. Or there's the, the preliminary practice, which is just viewing, constantly viewing our waking existence is not substantially different from the dream state in that things are not the way they appear to us. They appear to be solid, unchanging, um, and uh, unified wholes. And they're not. Our perceptual system creates that illusion. So we're, we're constantly living in this experience of things in a way that's different than they actually are. That then we know that they're actually different than we than we experience them if we think about it, but we don't think about it. So the practice is to think about it. Uh, let's see. At the very end, let's see. In the practice of dream yoga, there are further techniques to be applied. So I'm on the last page. After one has apprehended the dream state for what it is, here I shall focus on the practice of cultivating lucid, dreamless sleep. So once you've perfected lucid dream sleep, you then wake up your dream, your deep sleep state of existence. Padmasambhava writes, and so he's quoting from this, this text, Natural Liberation which goes through six different ways of experiencing liberation, one of which is the dream yoga, dream state. 
when you're fast asleep, if the vivid and divisibly clear and empty light of deep sleep is recognized, the clear light is apprehended. The clear light is uh, uh, is uh, enlightened mind, primordial wisdom, and that's what appears when we die. And most sentient beings swoon; they, we faint, we pass out because we can't experience the intensity of it and the lack of subject object and and so forth the lack of familiarity of a framework of me is is not present and so our conscious mind just passes out and the whole goal of buddhist practice to some extent um well there's two goals one is to be helpful to others and to be helpful to oneself one tries to achieve liberation if not in this life but when you die by staying aware during the first experience of death of the of the clear light of death and most people don't obviously and they go into the next phase which is the famous phase from the uh, that's described in the tibetan book of the dead where you have all the deities uh, that but, whole could i just add that the, the key point of trying to do that is that you practice it now during life right because yeah. otherwise no chance that you'll recognize it then so right and so that's the idea that all of our practices oriented towards recognizing that clear light and that clear light is perceived by uh experiencing insight into egolessness upon a firm basis of shamatha and the experience of emptiness or egolessness is the clear light Uh, the clear light is apprehended. One who remains without losing the experience of meditation all the time while asleep without the advent of dreams or latent predispositions is one who dwells in the nature of the clear light of sleep. What he's describing is the nature of primordial consciousness when it is perceived devoid of content and conceptual structuring. So this is Alan's terminology for uh, the enlightened state as opposed to the substrate consciousness which is the Aliyah Vishnana. So what he's talking about is removing the object of meditation which is the dream so that you're in a non-dual state. Well yes but it, this is when there is no dream already you know when right, we're no, no, but, but that but you transition from dreaming lucid dreaming right and then the next step is let go of the dream usually yeah that's right you know we're saying the same thing one one method is you use the dream state as the launching pad for that and the other is that you don't need the launching pad anymore you just when you're in deep sleep you experience it directly but yes same experience this is called the clear light of awareness sorry primordial consciousness when it's perceived devoid of content and conceptual structuring this is called the clear light of awareness about which Padmasambhava writes, the nature of the clear light even after the stream of thoughts has ceased and you've gone to sleep is a clear and empty phenomenon of the dream state, which is like the center of limpid space, remaining nakedly without object, limpid space. While the cultivation of meditative quiescence alone may withdraw the mind into the relative ground state of awareness, known as the substrate consciousness or ground of becoming, 
that does not ensure that one will actually ascertain the clear, empty, luminous nature of primordial consciousness. That is one of the goals of dream yoga, which is practiced while sleeping. It is also the goal of the great perfection, which is primarily practiced while in the waking state. And so the great perfection presentation, uh, we will not be able to go through here. Um, but we will we will encounter actually a number of times in subsequent classes. So hopefully you read through, were able to read read through it, and if you weren't, I encourage you to. Final comments or or questions? Any announcements? Anything? Uh, any interesting things going on in the Buddhist world? In the next week or so, let's see. Oh, I know. Uh, do you guys, are you guys aware of a, a public publisher named Shambhala? Shambhala Publications. Have you heard of that? They publish a lot of like avant-garde literature. Um, they have a series of children's books. They have a series of. Um, anyway, the founder of Shambhala Publications, Samuel Burkholz, was one of, uh, of a close student of Chogyam Trungpa, as well as a close student of Trollok Rinpoche and also of Tinley Norbu Rinpoche. Uh, Tinley Norbu being the son of Dujan Rinpoche and the father of Zongsar Kensei Rinpoche. Quite a lineage, huh? Um, and uh, Westchester, he'll, he'll be giving a talk through the Westchester Meditation Center on Sunday morning via Zoom from 10 to 12. And that should uh, be quite interesting. It's on the teacher-student relationship. So I urge you to encourage you to check that out this Sunday from 10 to 12. If you go to the Westchester Meditation Center website, you can find that. And if you sign up for their newsletter, you can find out about other such interesting events. So let us uh, dedicate. And then there's that movie that we uh, talked about coming up. So. Oh, yeah, there's a movie on the life of Trollok Rinpoche, right? And and it airs on Saturday. Is is it just at one time, or does it start to air then? It, it's a, I think it's a week. I, I think it's one of those Vimeo things. Available for a week from the nineteenth to the, I mean from the twelfth to the nineteenth. Sorry, um, cool. it's cool. on show. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Can can you uh, share that with the, the group? I can't do it now. It's the link I sent you earlier. It's I'll do it. Yeah, I can do it. Yeah. So uh, Trollo Grimshaw was an amazing teacher and uh, very close to our own teacher in many ways so urge you to check that out as well thank you cynthia and uh i, I don't blind copy also if you have interesting things to share it's not a lot of them but uh, you're able to do that let us dedicate the vast immeasurable merit <laughs> Thank you.
By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the Grades, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to see you. Good night. I'll see you. See you Good soon. Night. Take care. Bye.